Hello, my name is Donata Strong-Skilbert, and welcome to the second episode of Privacy Laws, where we'll be discussing the history of privacy. This is part one of our discussion on the history of privacy, where we'll talk about the origins of privacy. In part two, we'll discuss the history of modern privacy, and in part three, we'll discuss privacy post-internet. Even though most of us think of privacy as a relatively modern concept, the truth is that humans have been thinking about privacy for a very long time. A lot of our views on privacy have changed over time, so it's very interesting to see where privacy really started. So today I'll be interviewing Coben Zweifel Keegan, who is the Managing Director in Washington, D.C. of the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Coben is a graduate of the University of Colorado School of Law, where he served as the Executive Editor of the Colorado Technology Law Journal. He also served as the Deputy Director of Privacy Initiatives at BBB National Programs, where he advised on frameworks such as the Privacy Shield and the Cross-Border Privacy Rules. So, Kogan, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the IEPP. Of course. Well, thank you so much for having me, Donata. This is uh, very exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Um, yeah, as you already said, um, I'm the Managing Director of IEPP's DC office. Um, that means that I'm, uh, I'm here to keep in keep track of the um, ever-evolving policy conversation at the federal level in the United States. Um, I'm here to uh, make sure that we're uh, always connected to all of the different stakeholders uh, on that uh, weigh in on privacy policy and uh, then try to bring all of that knowledge back to the privacy professionals around the world who uh, are part of the IAPP's family. So um, that's that's sort of my role, focused on policy issues and um, getting to nerd out about privacy all the time and, and write a lot uh, for the IEPP, which is a lot of fun. I have to say, I visit the IEPP website at least once per day. Um, it's definitely one of my favorite resources of all time to learn more about privacy. I have the CIPP designation, and I love the, the new sources. And I actually often use the job postings to send to our law student volunteers at the ABA as well. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how listeners can utilize the IPP, like certifications, keeping up to date with privacy news, and finding a job in privacy? Sure. Yeah. And um, yeah. Thanks for that question. I think um, the IPP is the is the profession of privacy, right? Where the it it's nothing without the entire community of of eighty thousand people around the world that that make up the privacy profession. Um, so I, I agree, it's a great resource both as in terms of the content that we try to curate and put out, but also um, just as the community itself, bringing bringing everybody together. Um, obviously, certifications are are one way of demonstrating your passion uh, for privacy. It helps to um, uh, signal to people that you've. Uh, focused and studied on on the specific issues and are able to work in an applied setting. Um, but uh, there's other ways to demonstrate that too, and uh, we uh, try to provide a platform for folks to connect and to um, engage and to learn about privacy as, in as many ways as possible. Um, definitely, there's a job board, there's um, uh, online discussions, and there's um, uh, our always fresh content, both from our editorial team, which puts out the Daily Dashboard newsletter and other newsletters. I write a weekly column in for our um, uh, U.S. Privacy Digest newsletter. And um, then uh, the uh, research team, uh, which is always putting out 
more in-depth white papers and um, legal analyses to help people uh, keep up with uh, more of the big picture issues that are always changing in privacy. Yeah, I think uh, some of my favorite resources of the IPP are the um, the state privacy bill tracker, uh, where you can view all of the bills that have currently been proposed and what stage they're in and, and what they mean, um, and also the knowledge nets. So you have um, chapter meetings all over the U.S. and the world yeah. uh, where you can meet privacy professionals in your city, which I think is just really fun. And I've met so many really cool people um, through the knowledge nets as well, which has been awesome. Uh, yeah, I so, agree. That's such a great part because yeah. we are always having um, it, it. It's another way of like not IPP doesn't have to do all the work ourselves. We just we help to provide that platform and. Uh, the knowledge nets just are, provide that local way for people to connect and, and hang out with each other. Exactly. It's a great way to make friends. Um, I know the IAPP works on a lot of really, really cool projects, um, but what's your favorite project that you're currently working on right now? Um, I am very excited about the FTC's ongoing rulemaking uh, process. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission uh, last year started their rulemaking on what they call commercial surveillance and data security. Um, I really have loved diving into the comments that came in from across the community in response to the 99 questions that the FTC put out as through that process. Um, it really is a great representation of our of everyone's current thinking on privacy from from industry to civil society groups. Um, there's thousands of pages of really rich resources there, um, and I've had a couple of interns take a look at some of the themes from that, and I'm working hopefully to put out um, uh, an analysis of one of those major themes, uh, data minimization. That's a that's a project I'm pretty excited about. Um, but yeah, a few irons in the fire, and it's always it's always it's never a dull moment. Well, I'm excited to see that analysis and read it in the future. That sounds really interesting. Um, so bringing it back to us here, um, what was your first ever introduction to privacy in your life? And what did you learn from that introduction? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it depends on how we think about it. I certainly became interested in privacy uh, at a vague level uh, pretty early on. I have a very unique name, even just my first name, um, the spelling and and. Uh, and uniqueness of that name uh, make it really easy to find me online. My digital presence is, um, I mean, by design, but also um, uh, almost impossible to uh, avoid having some uh, digital footprints. And uh, it's very easy to find me um, if, if you know my just my first name. So that made me really interested in kind of how that works in practice and what kinds of um, controls I, I would be able to assert over that. Um, and then in law school, um, I went to University of Colorado, as you mentioned, uh, while Paul Ohm was teaching there. And so I always joke that Paul is my uh, privacy dad, but um, I think that was my first. <laughs> he helped to uh, focus my interest in technology policy um, into, into the privacy lens. And I think that was my first deep foray into uh, privacy issues. And I've stuck with it ever since. <laughs> Yeah, I have a pretty unique name as well. So I definitely get that. If you search my name, you'll definitely find me. There's no doubt about that. Um, so, you know, people have more common names, I think, and, 
you know, have more anonymity because it could be anyone, right? Um, versus people with more unique names, it's it's definitely you. Um, so what does privacy mean to you in general? Oof, that's a very big question. <laughs> I think um, uh, for me, privacy is this emergent property that comes about uh, when uh, we have uh, when we have other things in our lives. So when we are able to assert autonomy over our information and, and over who can see and interact with us, um, when we're able to uh, retain contextual integrity for interactions uh, across different contexts, um, that's when we have privacy. And so it's this thing that, that emerges naturally through that. And, uh, and what we try to retain in the data privacy realm is that same feeling. Um, even in these spaces where data is flowing always and, and connecting across contexts. I like that. I think I see it as deciding for yourself what level of interaction you want to have with someone. Um, you know, so even with these companies, what level of interaction do I want to have with Apple? And maybe I don't want to have any interaction, so I can cut that off whenever I want. Um, obviously, you can't really do that now, um, or at least in most countries, you can't do that now. But um, I, I think that's how I would see it as well. Um, so let's get into the main topic of today, which is the history of privacy. And let's go back to the very, very beginning, um, hunter-gatherers. So <laughs> we know that hunter-gatherers, they lived and slept in the same beds or in the same huts. Um, how did they view privacy? Did they have a desire for privacy? Um, yeah, I, I would have to imagine they did. I think uh, I'm not an anthropologist, but I certainly read plenty of, uh, of writings on, on these on, uh, on early peoples. Um, the we and I think the distinction we'd have to draw um, in this conversation as we go through time is that we're starting thinking about. Uh, physical privacy, for sure, like privacy in the traditional sense of um, uh, the ability to um, keep people from knowing things about yourself in the in the real in the real world. Um, and as we move forward as, with as technology shift, we're thinking more about uh, data privacy, which is a practice that we're focused on. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, early peoples uh, certainly understood privacy, especially. Um, even even then, in these uh, in the sense of um, keeping things uh, safe and private uh, in different contexts, um, obviously family groups are really important um, in that time of human history. Um, and there's big distinctions between what you might uh, tell your tell your tribe about and what you might uh, try to keep from from uh, strangers. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, there's evidence of, of that retention of, of privacy between family groups and between um, uh, tribes. And I think that starts, that's always, uh, even if cultural norms differ, um, those, those, part, those are uh, cultural universals, I think. I think it's interesting to think about, like if you lived in a tribe that was just your family or maybe 100 people at the most, you know, those people probably knew quite a lot about you. But if you went, you know, 500 miles away, nobody even knew that you existed. Um, so I, I think information didn't flow to the extent, nearly to the extent that it does now. And, and I think overall, they probably had 
less privacy in like the family context, but more privacy in the outside context than we do now. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a lot of research on um, the types of the number of folks that we're sort of wired to be able to have close relationships with. I think um, that that number in the 100 to 200 range is what um, anthropologists seem to suggest is uh, the, the number of intimate relationships we can have. Um, I think that seems, it, it seems that that dictated often the, the kind of the natural size of, of human uh, groups um, before we reached uh, <laughs> industrial civilization. So um, that's, uh, that's interesting in the context of privacy because um, it is difficult to, it's, it, and especially now that we're connected with hundreds of thousands of people online, it's, it's difficult for us sort of mentally to, to be able to handle that, that much information and dictate all the terms of those engagements on our, exactly. on our own without technological assistance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but moving on to the ancient Greeks. Um, so Aristotle provided a distinction between two spheres of life. The public sphere, which he called polis, um, which was associated with the political sphere, and the oikos, which was a private sphere associated with domestic life. Um, so what does that tell us about the ancient Greeks' understanding of privacy? Yeah, I think that's just a great, um, I mean, it's, I think oikos is thought of in different ways throughout the writings of, of different Greek philosophers, but um and it comes up both in the sense of like the the physical structure and the uh, and the idea of of home and family. Um, I certainly there's the same um, through line of uh, respect for uh, the family unit as the basic building block of society. I think Plato later was uh, very much opposed to that. That that. Plato, I think, considered that these um, that oikos was a threat to the polis, a threat to um, the ability to have consistency um, in uh, the social in yeah the social fabric. Um, but uh, yeah, I think just at a, at a base level, it's uh, it's helpful to um, recognize that we've considered family life and the inside of our homes to be particularly uh, separate spaces from the rest of society and that there's that context um, is uh, dictates different norms within that, that context than other parts of our lives. And I, I think Socrates said that for where men conceal their ways from one another in darkness rather than light, uh, there no man will ever rightly gain either his due honor or office or the justice that is befitting. Um, so how does that compare to what Aristotle said? And also, does this match up with popular Roman activities? Like they had public bathhouses and, and public latrines. Yeah, I think it certainly suggests some consistency there um, between yeah the thinking on, on transparency and some of those public norms. I think um, that's not, uh, I, I guess I would just highlight that there is so much uh, that cultural culturals are relative. That cultural relativism is a real thing. There's um, nothing uh, written in stone that says um, how we should, as a culture, uh, dictate and 
uh, enforce the norms of our lives, including around privacy, um, whether that's around um, intimate behavior or nudity or whatever. A lot of uh, we, we see with, with the Greeks and others that there's uh, different ways of, of slicing and dicing that. But what remains important is uh, maintaining those um, that those those norms uh, and the context. And so lots of um, work is done to make sure that people uh, respect the whatever the norms are um, and uh, keep to keep to them in public or in private. It's interesting when you look at pictures of these public latrines, there's no walls, right? And, and I think nowadays people will be absolutely just horrified by that, um, you know, of, of going to the bathroom without a wall. Like we have public bathrooms now, but they all have walls. Um, but back then there usually were no walls in these bathrooms, which I think is really interesting. And I think it kind of brings in the view of Europe versus United States as well. Um, so I'm from Eastern Europe and like public nude beaches were very, very common there and still are. Um, but here in the U.S., you don't really see that, which I think is interesting. Yeah, that is. a. I mean, I think, again, um, it just highlights the fact that all of that is relative. Um, we, uh, um, even if we like, even if defecation is something that maybe isn't something that people aren't are uh, as protective of for their privacy, um, I, there's usually other things that, that doesn't necessarily indicate that that the people are free in every aspect of their lives. I think those norms can shift and change over time. Um, so I think. Uh, even as the Greeks uh, were were fine with public nudity and and uh, more comfortable with with uh, relieving themselves in front of each other, I think um, they still had that deep respect for the separation of family and public life. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And so let's move on to the Middle Ages. Um, great example in the Middle Ages and and beyond. Um, so royal wedding nights and royal births they required public witnesses. Um, what does that say to us about their view of privacy um, and privacy for uh, individuals that live and work in the government versus private individuals? Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's uh, that's a good example there of probably different expectations around uh, the rights that uh, private citizens have versus public officials. Um, I think a big part of the um, the idea behind things like that is to ensure um, uh, sort of a, a paper trail when it comes to um, uh, parentage and um, the importance of royal blood, um, those kinds of things. Uh, those are early indicators of, of what was to come later and, and um, how celebrities and public officials are, um, really have different expectations um, uh, around their um, around their activities um, uh, and people have a sense that there's uh, a, a right to invade their privacy in many instances because of uh, the, the importance of, of their private activities to the public sphere. We see some of that right now. So even though royal births are, are no longer really attended by the public, we do, we have kind of seen in the last couple of years that you know, some people believe that because, you know, the royal family is partially funded by tax dollars, that there is some kind of right of, of private individuals to see the inside of those families' lives. Um, and, and that's caused a lot of issues in the past. 
Um, and it's interesting with women that are not royal, um, there have been different shifts in, in births, right? So right around the time when I was born in the area that I was born, there was no kind of thought that the, um, the, you know, the parent that's not giving birth, that that parent should be in the same room as the parent that is giving birth. Um, so for example, my mom was by herself in the hospital and my dad was outside of the hospital and she showed me to him through the window um, versus now um, there's, it's very, very popular for both parents to be in the same room. Um, and I think that's, that's an interesting kind of opening to, to that kind of process. Yeah, for sure. I think um, the, the, that's just a good example of, of a very intimate part of our lives, right? And so I think um, those, uh, even if there's that same relativ relativism there, um, we, yeah, I don't know, we always put special emphasis on certain moments, for sure. Um, yeah. And yeah, I don't know, there's, yeah, there, it is interesting to see how that um, has shifted over time and also remains a, an important thing for people to feel like they need others to witness. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe it's just the support too of, of having someone you love in the same room probably helps a lot. But, you know, now it's, it's kind of a choice. Some people have it, some people don't. Some people take pictures, some people take videos and, and others don't. It's really interesting to see how that's evolved. Um, so moving on to the late medieval and early Renaissance period. Um, so this is right around the time of the invention of the Gutenberg's printing press. Um, so the press really allowed people to contemplate their readings in, in private if they could read um, instead of public places like the church. Um, so how did the printing press change our view of privacy? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those those moments in history where we have major disruptive uh, innovations, um, both for, and I think the printing press is that for many reasons, including uh, for privacy, uh, that's a great point to highlight around the ability of, of consuming information in private. Um, I think this uh, it also this flattened uh, it flattened the world in many ways. It allowed for the easy easier access to information and easier distribution of information, uh, both of which have uh, impacts to uh, to privacy. Um, I, as you mentioned, I guess allowing people to uh, to consume information privately helps to uh, changes the dynamic around how uh, we expect uh, uh, our own uh, thoughts and and um, and learnings to be uh, respected, kind of in our, our setting the terms of our own autonomy there. Um, and I think the ability to distribute information more um, uh, more easily, reducing the friction there. Um, also helped to establish, it's it sort of laid the foundation for uh, the norms that we see now around um, being able to uh, to share, to d dictate, um, to both share widely, but also dictate to whom we're um, sending information to. It's interesting because nowadays, you know, people will say, oh, kids now, they're always in their phones, they're not paying attention to where they're walking. Um, but I guess back when books were first started to be published, uh, that's what they would say about books is that young people always have their heads in the book, not looking at what they're doing and running into the road and all kinds of things. So it looks like things haven't changed that much since then. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, 
So the U.S. Constitution, as it was originally written, um, it didn't really talk that much about privacy, right? Um, we had the amendments come down later, that that kind of third, fourth, and fifth amendments that talk about, about privacy. But what about the U.S. Constitution um, initially? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, we mostly focus on uh, the Fourth Amendment um, as uh, the primary vehicle for um, for thinking about privacy in the U.S. Constitution. Um, there's obviously, uh, I think, part of what we, part of putting limitations and guardrails around um, government's ability to surveil and understand uh, the intimate details of our lives um, was something that was certainly on the uh, on the founders' minds. Um, and that's, I guess, a good opportunity to highlight um, this idea of privacy from whom, right? And I think uh, in the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence that we have, we're always thinking about privacy from the government uh, instead of privacy from private individuals or institutions. Um, and uh, that's uh, where a lot of our constitutional scholarship is focused. Um, but data privacy is also concerned with um, dictating uh, how other entities can uh, can view and infer data about us. Um, so, the, But a lot of that, I think a lot of early work, especially when governments were the primary stakeholders that, that um, uh, had uh, power over our lives, um, that was a much more important question. And what about the first U.S. census? So I think John Adams penned a note um, saying that he does not want to publish his information in the census. How was the first census kind of taken by, by individuals at that time? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I'd love to see um, a historical analysis just focused on, on that because I do think that's such a fascinating um, moment in time to be to to have that distinction of like um, yeah all of this at some point would be public our full our names and addresses and occupations all listed in, in a single registry um, I think that is certainly a transformative moment um, but uh, it, and it, it's interesting that um, I mean from that time on there was uh, we we've had a norm around um, sharing that information at least in our local communities like we there were people probably remember phone books or some people remember phone books now and uh all of the most of that same information is it was published and distributed for most people uh in the phone book um and uh that uh, yeah it's sort of this sense of like our identities um being out there uh for public consumption um has been a part of our cultural fabric um, but it was also at a time when there was a lot of friction involved uh, between the, being, there was, yeah, being able to consume and make use of that information required a lot of effort um, versus nowadays where um, we can combine and search much more easily. Right. Imagine trying to dial everyone in the phone book to try to sell them something. I mean, it would take you years to, to do that versus now we have auto dialers and databases and all of this other stuff. Um, so that's why you're getting these thousands of text messages every week about, you know, whatever it is that they want you to buy. <laughs> um, right, so the, exactly. 
The 1710 Post Office Act, um, so that established the U.S. Post Office um, and it banned sorting through mail and the opening of mail by postal employees. Um, so how does this reflect the thoughts on privacy at the time? Um, I think uh, this is a good representation of the fact that we have always privileged um, communications information, right? That, that the ability to, um, that communications information is, is sensitive data. Uh, it's, a, it's a sensitive aspect of our, uh, of our lives and it should come with additional protections. Um, one thing that uh, is interesting in the Post Office Act and sort of the development of um, postal privacy is that um, is the distinction between the contents of communications and the sort of the metadata, the, the delivery information on a, on a postcard or, or on a, on a uh, not a postcard, everything's public on a postcard, but um, or viewable on a postcard, but on a uh, on an the, the outside of the envelope versus the contents of the envelope. Um, there's a lot of analogies that happen later on in, in various court decisions and um, advocacy around um, extending that analogy into the digital sphere and saying that um, perhaps the government can surveil um, the metadata of our communications without a warrant, but certainly not the, um, the contents uh, in certain circumstances. That's a really interesting kind of juxtaposition between the, the inside and the outside of the envelope, right? Because back then, letters were probably included much more private information than they do now. You know, most of the letters that we get now are bills or um, advertisements or whatever. But back then, they didn't have phone. They didn't have email. Um, so they, they wrote down their, their private things in the letter. Um, so I, I think that's very, very interesting. Um, and many say that the modern birth of privacy came with the publication of the right to privacy in the December 15th, 1890 issue of the Harvard Law Review. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that paper? Sure. Yeah, Warren and Brandeis were sort of thought of as the forefathers of of data privacy for sure. In that paper, um, I think this is where we're starting to see that transformation from uh, a focus on phys physical privacy and and physical um, autonomy to thinking about the kinds of artifacts that we that can be made about us. Um, Warren and Brandeis were particularly concerned about uh, the photograph, about the camera. Um, and that's a, that was the transformative technology of the day, um, and I think and yeah, there's their writing and and uh, on that is is interesting uh, primarily and it's relevant it's like continued relevance to our thinking about other new new and emerging technologies. Um, emerging technologies always uh, come with a whole new set of values and understandings, and we uh, kind of struggle as a society always to, to shift our expectations around um, and often try to use analogies to say, what should we, how should we be thinking about this technology and, and what kinds of privacy interests do we have? Uh, who, who has the right to um, uh, consume information about us that this technology uh, facilitates? So. Um, yeah, they, it remains a, a perennially relevant um, paper, and it's always good to return to. 
Absolutely. I think it's interesting that they talked about limitations of privacy and consent being one of those limitations, which we see in some European privacy laws, where with the individual's consent, you can publish certain information or collect or use that information. Um, so I think that's interesting that we see that nowadays. Um, this next one's a kind of a interesting, fun tidbit of history, um, and that's uh, President Grover Cleveland's wife. Um, and at the time, uh, you know, his wife was apparently very beautiful. Um, so her image was being used without her consent on advertisements, uh, including for various uh, beauty products, uh, one of which included arsenic, um, which the uh, the advertisement said to use every day uh, for, for clear skin or a beautiful complexion, uh, which is definitely not something that you should do. Um, what does that tell us about privacy at the time? Oh, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack in all of that because, um, yeah, I mean that this is sort of that continuation of of the public public figure privacy. Although the wives of of American presidents um, uh, have have struggled, I think throughout history with this sense of like they didn't necessarily choose. Uh, it's not the same. Uh, it's not like like being born into royalty. It's a very different uh, kind of public figure uh, stardom, and I think some some people have embraced that more than others. Um, the I think the issues around like the use of people's images um, that certainly uh, that's part of what underlies some of the um, traditional privacy torts in the United States and elsewhere. Um, kind of uh, invasion of of people's autonomy, the use of people's like spreading people people's likeness without their permission, um, and that also uh, there's also advertising law components of of the fact pattern that you just um, described. I think, I mean, uh, Frances Cleveland was also um, uh, she tried very hard, I think, to preserve her privacy throughout her life, um, uh, including by living not deciding to live. Uh, away from the White House, uh, similar to to President Trump's wife, I think, um, in that decision, uh, and tr- and trying to avoid the public light because there was so much pressure um, to to become this public figure without privacy. Maintaining that kind of autonomy and dignity was important to certain people. Absolutely, I, I totally agree with that. I don't think any of us would be happy when, if our image were to be used to sell arsenic beauty cream. Um, that that could potentially poison and kill people and all of this kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, That's at the time we, we didn't necessarily know that part, but yes, it was. Um, yeah, it might it, in hindsight, it's probably bad to have been part of the putting spreading arsenic on your face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so with the invention of the telephone, um, at the very beginning of the telephone, um, private telephone lines were very expensive. So neighbors shared one line and they called it a party line. And apparently it was common to eavesdrop on others' calls. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, this is another transformative technology, right? And so um, we, it's always interesting how the the limitations of technologies, like the the structures and, and, um, uh, design decisions and how we build a product uh, dictate uh, the kinds of privacy expectations that people have. Um, at the time, yeah, it was technologically and it was expensive uh, to, to build um, direct lines. Uh, it, it required a single, um, each line was a line of 
copper, <laughs> and it, it was both expensive and uh, relatively um, infeasible to connect every single home until they found better ways of um, distributing those analog signals. And um, yeah, that means that from that we had to that was our our expectation of how conversations, uh, the privacy of conversations, had to to fit that technology. Um, I think it's not. I don't think that was. Uh, I, I I doubt people. I think people would would were too excited about the fact that they could call each other. Uh, that the, the ability of like <laughs> the abil the way that that connected people in a much less uh, with much less friction than going to trying to go see someone in a planned way, uh, corresponding over over the mail, um, was uh, such a transformative thing that uh, we accepted with that adjustments to our expectations. Although also, um, in-person communication is generally uh, subject to eavesdropping as well. So I think it wasn't um, uh, that much, I, I can. I don't think it was that much of an issue for people to think like, oh, other people will be able to hear this. Just like if I'm talking to someone in church, they'll be able to <laughs> hear my conversation. Um, so if I really want to be private, I, I guess I'll write it and send it to the postal service. <laughs> Uh, there's some really interesting posters um, that were made at that time to keep uh, party lines private and not eavesdrop on your neighbor's conversations. And I wonder how well those worked. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, I yeah. think that's cool too. In terms of like, um, yeah, we start to you you start to see different ways of of policing or establishing social norms um, and adjusting those over time, but that requires, unless there's technological solutions, like going to individual lines, um, that requires sort of goodwill and and uh, and people following the, the unwritten or written rules around uh, what privacy uh, should look like. Yeah, the honor system, kind of. Like, I'm, exactly. I'm talking to someone and I'm hoping that my neighbors aren't listening. Uh, but speaking about policing, um, let's talk about our final topic, uh, which is the famous novel by George Orwell, 1984. Um, so how did this novel describe the potential infringements of privacy in the future? And what did it tell us about privacy at the time? Well, yeah, I mean, again, um, this, I think, pushes us back again towards this conversation around privacy from whom um, the idea, the premise of, of 1984, I'm assuming most people are familiar with, but it's a dystopian novel um, about a society that, that really lacks privacy, especially from the government. Um, uh, it's, an, it's a time uh, that uh, when uh, people are expected to um, uh, share with the government all aspects of their lives and, and their neighbors' lives, uh, and that uh, conformity is, is valued over anything else. Um, and I think there's what's interesting. I think uh, from for tech policy nerds, uh, or at least for me, in that in that story is um, are the technologies that that Orwell was um, uh, considering as uh, especially things that didn't quite exist at the time. So televisions that could that could spy on you, um, uh, the kinds of ubiquitous surveillance devices. Uh, that he envisions um, and now are more or less commonplace, but not in the same, not in the same, quite the same way that he was envisioning. Not the not the television that that uh, had had a dedicated uh, uh, agent on the other line, making sure that you were uh, not 
up to any nefarious activities in the privacy of your home. Uh, but we do have um, more ubiquitous uh, devices around us now with, with lots of sensors and cameras, microphones, um, and trying to determine those guardrails to make sure that we're not facilitating the kind of world seen in 1984 um, has, is a big part of what, what privacy professionals do. I think the the telescreen is really interesting in 1984 because in the novel, the telescreen, the person watching on the other end of it is a party official, right? So a representative of the government versus now a lot of the technologies that we have, the, the people that are on the other end, not necessarily watching exactly what you're doing, but collecting that data um, are companies, right? So we're not... We kind of went from being concerned about the government watching us to being concerned about the government and private companies watching us. Um, and I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, is Newspeak. Um, do you think that has any kind of closeness to what we call fake news now? Hmm. Well, first, yeah, on your prior point, let me just say that I think yeah, it's not just uh, privacy from commercial entities, but it also deter there's a lot of important guardrails related to how a company is going to use information, right? So there was the FTC case against Vizio. It was a TV that was watching you, not not you, but watching what you're watching. Um, and now that's actually commonplace um, for, for uh, companies at all layers of the TV chain to be uh, paying attention to what it is, the, the stuff that you're consuming, um, but maybe not reporting that to the government and maybe not um, using it in an identifiable ways, uh, using it instead in more aggregated forms. Um, but those kinds of, yeah, those kinds of guardrails are uh, important and that's kind of the bread and butter of, of what we do. Uh, Newspeak, yeah, I, um, <laughs> and fake news, I, I would see in Newspeak more a reflection of again, how society evolves, right? I think um, Newspeak was a, an idea of a government-mandated uh, changes in uh, language use um, to uh, help. And I think part of Orwell's idea there was that um, changing how we talk changes how we think, um, that by uh, uh, trying to banish... Um, certain phrases or change the meaning of things, um, you could adjust people's patterns of thought and behavior. Um, I think uh, there's certain reflections of that in um, the kind of, in how we organically um, evolve as a society. And I think that evolution has been facilitated and intensified by our always connected nature now. So I think social media and algorithmic um, content decisions um, certainly help to facilitate the evolution of language, the evolution of, um, of expectations around how we interact with each other. Um, and that, uh, yeah, that trickles down uh, in various ways <laughs> into our society. Uh, and also, I think what we see now are, are yeah, lots of the, the kinds of filter bubbles. So maybe not new speak for everyone, but, but new speak for, for certain populations, more of a fracturing. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your insights into the history of privacy. Um, in our next episode, we'll be discussing the history of privacy from the novel 1984 to the more modern pre-internet era. Um, but without further ado, I did want to get into our privacy news segment real quick. 
Um, so the latest news in privacy, which is AI privacy concerns, um, that's been very, very popular lately. Um, so there have been multiple regulators uh, like those in Germany and Italy that have launched investigations as to whether ChatGPT violates privacy. Some of those concerns have been resolved, um, but many are still unsure as to whether large language models like ChatGPT or BARD violate privacy. Um, and a lot of people are still very cautious using those types of tools. Um, so what types of privacy issues can be caused by AI tools and how can people protect themselves? Yeah, that's a big question and certainly uh, top of mind for a lot of people right now. Um, the IAPP just announced the launch of our AI Governance Center, which is endeavoring to do all the same things that we do for the privacy profession, but for the broader AI governance community, um, which includes a lot of additional equities not related to privacy, things like bias and discrimination, uh, things like intellectual property rights, um, lots of issues raised by AI. Um, generative AI has been like you said, top of mind recently, definitely an explosion um, in terms of the policy discourse and the discourse everywhere uh, right now. Um, I, I view uh, the privacy interests involved in generative AI as actually less uh, uh, salient uh, than um, other types of uses of AI. Um, but they're cer they certainly are there. And often when we're, look we're thinking about um, uh, powerful algorithms. We, we are thinking about um, privacy issues related to the data that are used to train uh, those uh, algorithms and then also um, data that can be produced using them. Um, so there are certainly uh, privacy issues in, in, uh, involved in how in the data that's ingested and that's um, an area where the FTC has issued, a, issued warnings and some shots across the bow already saying you have to have um, you data is only as good as the provenance of, of and the privacy interests that you have to begin with. And so if you're using if you're using data that you don't have a right to be using to train these algorithms, um, the FTC is not going to look kindly on that. Um, and there's privacy interests on the back end as well, although those are a little bit more fraught. I think misinformation uh, or perceived misinformation in the output of generative AI um, can have a privacy framing in the sense that anything about us, even if it's false, we have we may have a privacy interest in. Um, but these systems, generative AI systems, are designed uh, to be creative. They're not designed for accuracy. And so I think there's a lot of misconception around how around the point of such systems. And at the same time, I think there's a lot of other types of uses of AI that do have more direct impacts on our daily lives and our privacy interests. Uh, things like uh, in the employment context, in housing, in the policing context, there's a lot of um, uh, areas where privacy and other equities um, are coming up uh, a lot. So I would highly recommend um, the report from the Electronic Privacy Information Center that really unpacks a lot of the issues around um, AI privacy uh, that, that really d dives deep into the issues. And um, then moving forward, we're hoping to really be uh, to help privacy professionals um, uh, train up and, 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 uh, and come <laughs> be able to join these conversations on um, generative AI and other types of AI um, in, within organizations because we're finding that um, privacy people are, have this on their desk no matter what anyway, uh, and we need to better understand these additional issues that are being raised. So 
uh, we're planning a conference in November, and um, we're, we're off to the races on on all of the AI issues and, and how they intersect with privacy. Very cool. I do hope that some lawyers join that conference. Um, there's recently been some some attorney that got into trouble for uh, using AI to write a brief, and it's cited cases that don't exist. Um, so he did get into a lot of trouble for that. So. Um, well, thank you, Coben, so much for taking the time to talk to me. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate all the resources and knowledge um, that you share on an hourly basis with all privacy professionals. Of course. Thank you so much, Donata. I'm excited to hear um, the rest of your uh, podcast, and I look forward to chatting anytime. I really appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Thank you.